Thanks for joining us today. I'm Rob Parker, lead pastor at The Plant Church. Our vision is to know Christ and make him known. If you are interested in getting connected or if we can help you in any way, email us at info at theplantchurch.org. Have you ever wanted to say to your spouse or a good friend or a child, say, you're acting like a baby? Anyone ever said that before? Sue has said that multiple times to me. So I, there's actually more, but I just want to narrow it down. Toddlers love possession. If I like it, it's mine. If I saw it first, it's mine. If it's in my hand, it's mine. If I can take it from you, it's mine. If I had it a little while ago, it's mine. If it's broken, it's yours. Right? Wouldn't we all agree with that? So what we're going to do today is we are continuing in our study of James. And James has hit on a lot of hard topics. I mean, it's almost like prophetic that he knew that COVID was coming in 2020, 21, and he says, I want to write a letter to the church. Now, one thing that we have to remember about James, James was a pastor. And so James, when he wrote his letter, he was writing a letter as a pastor, not as an apostle, but as a pastor, because he saw so many different situations going on in the church that he said, I need to start addressing these issues. And so conflict is a struggle. It's opposition. And co conflict does not have to be something violent but it's always in a place of tension. Has anyone had conflict in the last week? Anyone have conflict in the last month? Anyone have conflict in their soul in the last year? Yes! And so there's this place that we have found ourselves in conflict, and the question is, how do we handle conflict? Because if we're really, really honest with ourselves, Conflict has the power to do two things. Pull us out of relationship with someone else. And even more importantly, pull us out of conflict with God. And so whenever we are in conflict, it's not just a conflict that we are in with someone else, but if it's handled improperly, it actually causes us to be in conflict with God. And what I love about James is he addresses this so, so simply, profoundly, that what I want us to do is I want to talk about conflict, and then how does James lay out a simple process for combating conflict? So would you pray with me? Jesus, we've all had conflict. God, I've had conflict in the last few weeks. And I know that when my places of conflict go to a certain stage... It actually pulls me away from fellowship with you as I am being pulled away from fellowship with someone else. And I ask you this, this morning, I ask you this morning that you would speak to us in this service in a way that, that needs to be spoken for each person here. Would the word of God be sharper than two, any two-edged sword? Would we look at the words of James? Would we heed them? Would we learn from them? 
to bring resolution between us and you and us and someone else. In Jesus' name, amen. Turn with me to James chapter 4, verse 1 through 2. James says this, and watch how he begins this. He's so practical. I actually believe that James is the most practical book in all of Scripture next to Proverbs. I've said this before, that, that James is like the Proverbs of the New Testament. James says this, what is causing the quarrels and fights among you? Don't they come from the evil desires at war within you? You want what you do not have. So you scheme and kill to get it. You are jealous of what others have, but you can't get it. So you fight and you wage war to take it away from them. Look at that passage real quick. Look how profoundly simple and true it is. I think if we were all to just read this passage that that we would say, yep, James is right, spot on, simple. But yet the only people that complicate conflict is who? Either us or someone else. And right away, James begins with a question. He says, what causes the conflict between you and someone else? What causes the fights? What causes the quarrels? And his answer is very simple. Now, one of the things that I love about James is that as he's writing his letter to the church, he uses the same words multiple times. And the one word that he uses in several of the other chapters, and again, we're only on chapter 4, he uses the word desire. And he talks about evil desires. The things that you want, yet you cannot have. Anyone been there before? The things that you want, you cannot have. Right? Paul says the things I want to do, I don't do. The things I cannot do, I I do. And there's this conflict in each one of us. And the word desire actually means lust. But when we hear the word lust, we think of it in, in the sense of some form of of sexual context. It's not. Lust is wanting something in an unhealthy manner. Anything you want in an unhealthy manner, you are lusting over that. Yes, you have lusted over a vehicle. That sounds weird, doesn't it? Right? I have lusted over a motorcycle. Right? I envy at times. My, my evil desires get pulled because I want what I cannot have. It's like the law of the toddler. Mine, all mine. And for each one of us, the conflict comes when there comes a point that that which I want, I am unable to get. The conflict comes out when I try to explain myself and I use it in such a way to manipulate and get my way. The conflict comes when the other person does not respond the way in which I want them to. Anyone guilty of that? Amen. You're like you all holy saints out there, right? Any of us there? Like seriously, we have all done that. And, and look at the words that James uses. He uses some very strong language. He says, you scheme, you manipulate, 
And then he uses a word, he says, you even kill. Now, how many of us have wanted something so bad that we've gone out and killed someone? Please don't raise your hand. <laughs> right? This is the only time you're not allowed to raise your hand. But, but think about this. We scheme, we manipulate. Anyone ever been there? I've done that. I've done that. Whenever I want something and I know I cannot get my way, there are times. Yes, there are times that my desires will override everything else, that even Pastor Rob, the holy man, will scheme and manipulate. But here's what we do do to people. We may not physically kill someone, but we do kill them in this context. We defame or try to destroy their character so that we win. Amen? We are willing to defame and, de and destroy their character for our good and our pleasure. And sometimes when we get so rooted in conflict, we forget what the conflict is over, and we do it just so we get the W. And I see that all the time, that, that when, when conflict goes undealt with, that years later that people are thinking like, why are we even fighting? What's the conflict over? And then all of a sudden there comes a point that the whole point of the conflict has nothing to do what you, with what you were fighting about, but rather that you would win. I'll never forget in our marriage, and we were in two years of our marriage, and our second year of marriage was a living nightmare. Year one was the greatest honeymoon, first year ever. I mean, it was like walking on cloud nine. But year two, all hell broke loose. And we were at a very, very unhealthy place. And I remember that I knew that, that if we didn't figure this out, there was something really bad around the corner. And we got so wrapped up in conflict that we actually forgot what we were fighting about. And my whole intention was to win. And Sue's whole intention was to win. And we went away on a weekend to remember, a marriage retreat. And the first thing the speaker said is, turn to your spouse and say this, you're not my enemy. And I remember turning to Sue and saying, wow. You're not my enemy. And yet she was my greatest enemy at that moment. I mean, think about the first murder in Scripture. Genesis chapter 4. Cain and Abel. The older brother kills the younger sibling for multiple reasons, but the greatest reason was pure envy. Pure jealousy. All he wanted was God's approval more than his brother being approved by God. That's all he wanted. He wanted God to shine his light on him more than he wanted God's light to shine on his brother. And so what did he do? He schemed. He manipulated. And then he actually killed. And even though at times we may not physically kill someone, 
we will go to any length to make sure we get the W. How simple and profound is this? And the reason why James is writing this, it wasn't just like out of the blue, someone was having a bad day. James was seeing that as he was overseeing multiple church locations, right? James had like a campus ministry. He was overseeing multiple church locations. He had seen conflicts breaking out. And so when he sat down and he wrote this letter, he said, what are like the top 12 things that the churches are dealing with? They're dealing with discrimination. They're dealing with their, their, their lack of faith in action, right? Aren't these things we've talked about? And they're dealing with, with fighting and quarreling amongst one another. And so he says, I need to deal with the issue of conflict. And if we are all fair to ourselves, it's not like COVID has ever brought up any new conflict. He's just magnified the conflict. He's just made it seem so much bigger than maybe it really, really is. And so he continues in verse 2 through 3. He says, yet you do not have what you want because you do not ask God for it. And even when you ask, you don't get it because your motives are all wrong. Remember the word desire? Remember the word motive? Again, these are words that he's using multiple times, and it's only the beginning of chapter 4. You want only what will, what will give you pleasure. You want what will only give you pleasure. And so we need to ask ourselves, why does that God not answer us at times? Why do our prayers seem so ineffective? Why does God not allow me to have what I want, what I crave for, what I hunger for, what I desire? Let's be honest. Many times we pray for wrong things. Or maybe better said, wrong things control what we ask God for. Hey, God, if you give me more money, I'll give more money away. Seriously? Hey, God, if, if you get me that boat, I promise you all summer, at least three times, I'll bring my life group onto the boat. Right? I'll use it for, as a gospel vehicle at least three times the first summer. Maybe not every week, but at least the first three times. Right? Hey, God, if you give me a bigger house... I promise you, I will open it up to missionaries and groups and people and they can stay there. The homeless guy that I see all the time in Ridgewood playing the flute, you guys know that guy? The flute guy in, in Ridgewood? I promise God, if you give me a bigger house, the flute guy can live in my spare bedroom. Right? And God's saying, you've never given. When you were a little kid, you didn't even share your bike. And I've already given you like this amazing house in Bergen County and not once have you ever even asked your neighbor to come over. And yet, your desires, you are using to manipulate me and I'm not going to answer. We ask for favor and conflict. Why? To get our own way. Anyone do that before? I've totally done that. God, just... Just help me out on this one. 
I, I want to prove a point. We ask God for vengeance to stick it to someone. <laughs> is that such a holy thing? Hey, God, vengeance is yours. Please do me a favor, stick it to him. Just this one time, one time. I promise you I will never ask again, but I promise you this. If you ask God to stick it to someone and he sticks it to them, you will ask God again to do it again. Amen? Come on, amen? Right? Isn't that true? If God shows us favor and conflict and we get our way, we know what our next prayer is. If God gives us vengeance we, and he gives it to us and he sticks it to someone else, guess what we're asking for again? We're going to do the same thing. If you've ever wondered why God does not answer your prayers, there's a reason. Ask, seek, knock. There's a journey of prayer that God takes us on at times. There are times that our hearts are so aligned with God's desires that he just answers them right away. There are times that we ask God for something and God's like, hey, it's coming, right, with Daniel. When Daniel was praying for three weeks, God was going to answer him right away. But for three weeks, what God was doing was aligning Daniel with God's will. He's going to answer it, but he wants you to push into it a little more. It's a little bit more about faith, a little bit more about trust. But then there's times when you keep asking for the same old thing and he won't do it because he knows that if he grants it, it's only going to cause more trouble in your life. 1 John 5.14, he says, And we are confident that he hears us whenever we ask for anything that pleases him. And since we know he hears us when we make our requests, we also know that he will give us what we ask for. You want to you look back on your life and see when you have aligned with God's will? Look at everything you've ever asked God for, and he's blessed you with it. Do you really want to know how you've been walking in stride with God through prayer? Look back. Look back. And you can just map it out. And then you want to see where you were off or I was off, because I feel like more times than not, I'm more off than on. I feel like when I'm praying for other people, I'm on more than not. But when I'm praying for myself, I'm oftentimes off more than I should be on. Anyone feel that? And so there's this tension. God wants to grant us our heart's desires when they align with his desires. God desires to work in us for his good purposes, not our selfish pleasures. I hate that. I hate that. Because there are certain things in my life, even in the moment of a conflict, that if I'm like, dude, just throw me a bone, God. Just throw me a little blessing. Help me just get through this week with this one conflict. Just kind of give me this one little out, this caveat. When we're in conflict, often with others, it puts us in an unhealthy space with Christ. We reject the Holy Spirit's conviction and direction. And this leads us to a place of wandering aimlessly 
away from God and not even knowing it. There is a place in my journey that I was praying and fasting. I mean, it wasn't just like a day or a month. It was like a year and nothing was aligning. And I was so angry at God and my situation that I had to take a space and just go before God and be silent. You want to know what the Holy Spirit actually told me? He said, for one year, this is exactly what the Holy Spirit told me. When you are going into devotions with me, this is what the Holy Spirit said. For one year, you have to sit in a room five days a week for an hour and just wait to hear my voice. And I did that. And it wasn't about day 339 where God started speaking to me again. Because my motives and my desires and my frustration was so blocking the voice of God in my life that I had to just position myself to shut up. And it was probably the best season of my life to learn that oftentimes prayer is not what we say to God. Prayer is positioning ourselves to hear God's voice. He continues in verse 4 through 5. Now James, James gets a little punky right here. He says, you adulterers. Don't you realize that fellowship with the world makes you an enemy of God? I say it again. If you want to be a friend of the world, you make yourself an enemy of God. Do you think that the scriptures have no meaning? They say that God is passionate. That the spirit he has placed within us should be faithful to him. I mean, think about that verbiage. Do you think that the scriptures have no meaning? They say that God is passionate. We talk about God being just and merciful. I mean, think about what James says. He says, God is passionate. That the Spirit, the Holy Spirit, he has placed within me, placed within you, should be faithful to him. There's language that he uses. And he's calling the church, he's giving the church a hard call out. Not to scold them, but to bring them back into fellowship with Jesus. And he uses verbiage that, that both the Old Testament talks about and what Jesus talks about. In the Old Testament, the words that God refers to is the imagery of marriage. The imagery of marriage that, that God and the people of Israel were married together. That he was the groom and the people of Israel was the bride. And then Jesus refers to himself that, that I am the groom. You are the bride. Jesus is the groom. We collectively are his bride. And he says, I am so passionate about you. That if I even see you flirting with something else. It's going gonna, it's gonna to hurt us. Men, how many of you get easily jealous out there? Women, how many of you get easily jealous out there? 
I used to be a, a crazy, jealous fool. A crazy, jealous fool. I used to be like, dude, I will rip someone's head off if I even think they're flirting with my wife. We had a situation about 15 years ago where my neighbor was trying to be very inappropriate with my wife, and I was going to physically kill him. Yes, I was going to introduce him to Uncle Remington. <laughs> now, some of you have not met Uncle Remington, but some of you have an Uncle Remington. Good thing this is not being filmed. And I remember, my wife's like, Rob, I swear I did nothing. And I know she did nothing. I watched the whole thing happen. But yet, I was angry at her, and I was going to kill him. And I went over to his house. And I was a lot bigger then. I said, let's talk. I said, my family does not play like that. And you are not allowed to play like that with my family. You're my neighbor. I respect you. I want to have a relationship with you, but I will not tolerate this. And the whole time, she's like, why are you so mad at me? Why are you so mad at me? Why are you so mad at me? I'm just mad at you. Like, she, she ran out. There you are back there. Hi. But it's true. And that's how God is with us. That's how God is with us. That when he sees us flirting with the things of the world... Yes, he gets jealous, and I love that God gets jealous. He says in Exodus 25, For I, the Lord your God, am a jealous God who will not tolerate your affection for any other gods. He does not want us to flirt with the world. Didn't we come to Jesus because we all came to the end of our rope and said, The world was not good enough. Jesus was so much better. Right, Christine? Right? We came to a point in all of our lives that, that we looked at our lives before Jesus and said, this did not work. As shiny, as good as it is, it didn't work. It, yes, it filled me temporarily. Yes, sin is fun. Amen? Sin is fun. Let's call it what it is. Sin is fun. Do I get an amen? All right. Anyone who's not saying amen, you're a bunch of liars, and that's next service. Right? It is seasonally fun. That's why we do it. But yet... The consequences are deadly. And we knew that when we were wrapped up in this, that we, that we realized like, oh my gosh, I don't want this. I, I want that. I want Jesus. I want Jesus. And what happens is we fall in love with Jesus. We, 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 we get engulfed by Jesus. And then what happens is we kind of get lazy in our relationships with Jesus. And we start getting pulled away. And then we have conflict. But remember this, when you first became a Christian and you were in conflict with someone else, you would do anything to let them know that Jesus loved them. You would do anything to let them know that you value them. You would even apologize for things you didn't do. But yet there comes a stage in our life, in our relationships, that we just forget where we came from. We forgot the grace of God. When James talks about the world, he's not talking about your neighbors. He's not talking about other people. He's talking about the world system, selfishness, greed, arrogance, materialism, consumerism, and individualism. He's talking about the systems of the world and how they all pull us into a different wrong direction. 1 John 2, do not love this world nor the things it offers you. For when you love the world, you do not love the, the love of the Father is not in you. For the world offers only a craving for physical pleasure, a 
craving for everything. We see a pride in our achievements and possessions. These are not from the Father, but are from this world. Everything of God is opposite the world. It opposes. They don't mix. They don't blend. It's like oil and water. It's like toothpaste and orange juice. Do you remember that when you were a little kid? The first time you ever brushed your teeth and then you drank your orange juice because you forgot to drink your orange juice before you brushed your teeth. And you're like, whoa, that was bad. And then you have like the worst breath for like 12 days, right? It just doesn't sit in you for like a day, but it just kind of like, like just kind of resonates there for like a week or two weeks, right? What about Microsoft and Apple, right? Seriously, this whole idea of Microsoft uh, 365, that whole new thing, anyone have that, right? That new office system, it is horrific, it's made me lose so many different programs. Just stick with Apple, people. Just stick with Apple. Two different ends of the spectrum, they don't mix well. It's the same thing with the holiness of God. Same thing with how we deal with people. How we love people. How we forgive people. Jesus says, no one can serve two masters, for you will hate the one and love the other. You will be devoted to one and despise the other. Isn't that true? Even as Christians, there comes a point that we all kind of like, we've gotten lost again. In some ways, it's like, it's like literally like our salvation journey is like a game of hide and seek. God finds us and then we wander away again. God finds us and we wander away again. God finds us and we wander our way again, right? It's like a game of hide and seek. And yet God's love for us is so great that when we are in conflict with others and we are being pulled away from God, God continually is to run after us. So how do we combat conflict? I made up a word last week, and I want to write this in a theological book, Sanctifying Grace. We all know the idea of original grace. Original grace is unmerited favor, something we do not deserve. James says this in verse 6, and he gives us grace generously. As the scriptures say, God opposes the proud, but gives grace to the humble. Sanctifying grace is remembering the initial grace that God has given us, and we continue to allow the sanctifying work of the Holy Spirit to continue to live us, have us live in a place of grace. That is sanctifying grace. Allow grace to continue to be lived out in your life, in you, through you, by Him, as you're in conflict with others. No matter what the conflict you may be in, because we are in Christ, God grants us the strength and ability to stand strong, to endure trials, to love others, and even forgive those who are undeserving. Do you realize unforgiveness is the Worst stronghold that you can have in your life. Because it's the one thing that kept you from God, not recognizing that you needed forgiveness, and it's the one thing that keeps you from others when you don't grant forgiveness one to another. 
Unforgiveness separates a person from others and from God like nothing else. And I've seen this. I've shared multiple times that there was someone who abused me. Doesn't matter the form of abuse it was. It wasn't sexual, but it was abuse. It was abuse that tormented me into my 30s. It was abuse that, that literally I almost took my life over. And I said, and I, at first when I became a Christian, I said, yes to I will forgive that person. But all the anger and hatred and resentment kept crawling back in. And I came to a point that when I was working at a church, I almost quit because I was unwilling to continue to forgive that individual. It was a Thursday night. Sue went for a walk with Carrie Nieblitz. And I got on my face and I cried out to God and said, I, in my flesh, hate that person. But in your grace, I need to forgive that person. And I didn't know what to pray. But the Spirit of God fell in my living room so hard that I literally started to pray in a different language. By the time I was done praying, I forgave that individual and it reshaped where I was going next. I contacted that individual. And you know, for the first time in their life, they admitted the abuse that they caused me. But I knew that if I didn't allow sanctifying grace change who I was, it would pull me away from my relationship with God and it would affect how I treat my wife and my children and how I led. He goes on in verse 7 through 8. So humble yourselves before God. Resist the devil and he will flee from you. We need to have a posture of humility. A posture of humility. There's two words that, 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 that James uses that are military words. Humble, which is another word for submit. We need to put ourselves under the authority of God. We need to say, you know what, God, as much as I feel like I am right, I know that you are in control of all things, so I'm going to sit under your authority. Even though I think I'm right, I'm going to submit myself to you, and I'm going to humble myself to you so I can stand at attention in a military way so you can guide me, lead me, how to deal with the conflict that I'm currently in. And then he uses another word, and he uses the word called resist, which means stand up to. There are times in conflict we need to stand up. We need to speak truth in love. And we also need to stand up to the schemes of the devil. And what are the schemes of the devil? They're lies, schemes, and his manipulation. Isn't this why back in the fall, like everything we have done this year, every single sermon series we have done was leading up to James. Every single sermon series touched on the next. Every single sermon series was like, was like a track meet, a relay 
where every single person running, every single sermon series was passing on the next baton, and the next baton, and the next baton. It's why the second sermon series of the year, we talked about the armor of God. We are equipped to stand up against the devil's lies and schemes. We are equipped through the armor of God, a helmet, a breastplate, feet fitted with the readiness of peace, a shield of faith to deflect the lies, a sword of the spirit where the word of God speaks to our heart while we are in conflict with others to cut to the bone and the marrow of our soul, to not only reveal what, what that person's doing wrong, but more importantly, people of God, what we are doing wrong. What is our part? When we resist the devil, this is what we allow to happen. We allow ourselves to have a different perspective in conflict. We recognize our part in the conflict we are in. And we have the, the ability to sympathize with the person we are in conflict with. I shared our second year of marriage. It was a tough year. And it started bleeding into the next year. And as much as I wanted to point the finger at my wife and all of her shortcomings, I'll never forget I had to stop and I had to say, hey, you first need to forgive me for my part in this crisis. Conflict has a power to take us down a very dangerous path. A path that in a subtle way pulls us away from others and our relationship with Jesus. But here's my last point. Verse 8 through 10, come close to God, and God will come close to you. Wash your hands, you sinners. Purify your hearts, for your loyalty is divided between God and the world. Let there be tears for what you have done. Let there be sorrow and deep grief. Let there be sadness instead of laughter and gloom instead of joy. Humble yourselves before the Lord, and he will lift you up in honor. Repentance leads to restoration. I mean, think about the story of the prodigal son. He was in conflict with his soul. He was in conflict with the kingdom he was living in. And he said, you know what? I'm out. And he went to go and do a job that no Jewish person would ever do. Feed pigs. You weren't allowed to do that. He basically was turning his back on his faith while he was feeding pigs. But he realized, like, wow, I am so far away from my father. Will he ever, ever welcome me back? But he knew the father's heart. The moment that his father saw him from a distance, they ran to one another. When we recognize that in conflict we are being pulled away from God, when we declare, God, I'm being pulled away from you, God brings us back. He draws near to us as we draw near to him. Repentance Recognizing our part allows us to be back in fellowship with God. So here's what I want to challenge you with today. All of us in some capacity have had conflict this year. All of us. You just might be in conflict with COVID. <laughs> Let's just be honest. You just might want to just beat up that virus. Let's just call it what it is. I want to challenge you today. I want to challenge you today. Take an honest look at any current conflict you are in with others. 
or conflict you're in with God. Check your motives and reasonings behind that conflict. Be honest. Forget about the other person. Forget about the other person. Check your motives. Check your desires. And then most importantly, see through the scope of the cross at the person on the other side. See through the scope of the cross at the person on the other side. Because as God welcomes you, he's called us to welcome one another. James is challenging the reader to take a hard look at what has caused conflict in their life. Do not allow wrong desires, wrong motives, nor the enemy to keep you from fellowship with God and with others. Yes, there are times when people are really, really wrong and you have to pull yourself out of fellowship only when you've done so in a biblical manner. Is there abuse? Is there harm, physical harm? And if you're in that situation, that's when we come to your pastoral staff. It's when we help you with counseling. It's not about your win. It's about the gospel winning in your life. It was great having you with us today. We do hope that this sermon inspired you to know Christ and make him known. For more sermons and resources, please visit us at theplantchurch.org.